Welcome to this episode of Out of the Best Books, the podcast where we deep dive into classic literature and have conversations about what we've learned and discovered along the way. We love all things books and reading, and we want to share our love of the classics with you. We hope to inspire you to read along with us and join in the conversation. I'm Laura. And I'm Amity. And Nan is here too. Let's get started. Okay, so quick recap of the last section. There's this huge fiasco of Lydia and Wickham. They eloped. Turns out that they got married. They were coerced into getting married, but it did happen. And it all came out through a letter from Mrs. Gardner to Lizzie that Darcy was really the one behind it all. Um, Mr. Bennett had been super stressed because he's like, I'm pretty sure Mr. Gardner had to pay Wickham a ton of money to like ultimately take Lydia and marry her. And I don't know how I'm going to ever pay him back. Turns out Mr. Gardner didn't. He was willing to, but he didn't. Mr. Darcy came along and he took care of everything, including making sure that they actually got to the church and got married. And now this all came out because Lydia and Wickham did come to Longbourn, which initially Mr. Bennett was like, they are never coming here. They did come and visit. It was very strange and awkward. and, And Lydia was extremely immature through the whole thing, but she had let it spill that Darcy was there at their wedding. And so that's why Lizzie even pursued that line of thought and asked her aunt what was even going on there. And there's this kind of funny, bizarre, strange conversation between Lizzie and Wickham where she basically lets him know that she knows, she knows the truth about who he is, what he is, and that he's not pulling anything over on her anymore. So yeah, that's kind of where we end and begin in this very last section of Pride and Prejudice, where it all wraps up and it's beautiful. So are you guys excited or sad that this is the last episode? Yes. Yes. Both. I I, I just love it so much. Anyway, go ahead. I feel like when we finish these huge books, it's such a like sense of accomplishment, but then it's sad to be done. And I think I'm sadder about this one than I was like A Tale of Two Cities. <laughs> I was like, I, feel like I want to watch all the movies this week. A hundred percent. I found myself having to go to YouTube and just watch some of the little clips. And and I do have to say over the course of, of our study of this, I still really, really love the 1995 version, the five hour one, because they are just like so true to the book. But I really, really come to appreciate the 2005 Kara Knightley went in and I never thought that I would, but they just, they really do build that chemistry between them. It's very sweet and it's very lovely. And there's a lot of parts that are much more true to it. So anyways, it the is. The 2005 version has a beautiful soundtrack. Yes, it does. Well, that's what I'm doing today. I've watched like three quarters of the 2005 version. And so I'll have to finish it and then I'll watch the other one. So, oh, you're in for a treat. I know. I'm excited. We're going to pick up with chapter 53 and 54. I know that my recaps are extremely surface, so (laughs) fill in. Okay, so soon after Lydia and Wickham leave, Mrs. Bennett hears that Bingley is returning to Netherfield. And now I was going back through looking for something else, and I was noticing that she's like, so she knows he's coming to Netherfield, and she wants to invite him over for dinner. And she's like, when can I invite him? When can, how long do I wait? What, you know? She's very excited to invite him over. And she wants Mr. Bennett to go visit him. But he's refusing because he's upset that Bingley has hurt his daughter. Bingley and Darcy end up coming to visit at the Bennetts. 
Bingley's coming and Darcy happens to be with him. Mrs. Bennet is extremely friendly with Bingley, but she like barely gives Darcy the time of day. She pretty much ignores him. So she starts talking about Lydia's marriage to Wickham, talks about it like it's this great thing, like it's a good thing, right? Elizabeth is mortified because she knows the whole story and she knows that Darcy knows the whole story. He knows more of the story than any of them really do. And Lizzie knows that. And so that is very mortifying to her. That her mom, especially that her mom's just being so rude and kind of arrogant to Mr. Darcy. Like he has some friends, but not as many as he should have. And I think the other thing that really starts to catch Elizabeth in these few chapters here is that to try to preserve some of her own feelings because she's still not sure how she's thinking about everything. It's been months since she's really confided in anybody about the last she's really talked to Jane about Mr. Darcy is that he proposed to her and that she got this letter. Right. And even the contents of the letter, she did not fully disclose to Jane. What we have here is that Lizzie just ends up there's all this dramatic irony because Lizzie is keeping so much from even people that she's really close to. She hasn't really lied, but because she's lied by omission she keeps ending up in these really awkward situations where people are saying things to her that she has no idea how to respond to. I read somewhere that in this time period, they like didn't share their feelings as much. And so Jane doesn't even know anything. And so when she does finally tell her how she feels, Jane's like, wait, what? When did that happen? Throughout the visit, Darcy isn't as friendly as he was back at Pemberley. And so this is making Elizabeth wonder did he really come here for me? She's second guessing herself. And then also through the visit, Jane and Bingley seem to be rekindling their affection for each other. Then at the end of the first chapter, 53, um, Mrs. Bennett invites Bingley and Darcy to stay for dinner. Just a couple of quotes I wanted to point out. This is right back at the beginning of the chapter. Again, thinking about this idea of an accomplished woman. To me, I feel like Elizabeth's greatest accomplishment is the way that she can... Well, I, I think it's evidenced in this conversation she had with Wickham. So the conversation with Wickham all happens before, but the very first paragraph of chapter 53, she was pleased to find that she'd said enough to keep him quiet, meaning Wickham. So somehow Elizabeth has perfectly managed to have a conversation with Wickham that does not create a family rift, but also makes sure that he's never going to bring it up again. And I think this is just so brilliantly done on Lizzie's part. Wickham is part of their lives now. He's always going to be there. But she needs to make it abundantly clear that if he starts mouthing off about Darcy again, it's not going to go well for him. And so he now is going to be silent on that subject. And I think she just does a brilliant job of that without having to have this open confrontation that could be really ugly and create a rift in their family. The other thing is... I think that as Bingley starts coming back and the way her mother's talking, I think sometimes parents can be very, very well-meaning and not do a good job of like actually preventing pain in their kids. I could see, Jane says, I could see him with perfect indifference, which really isn't true, but Jane is trying very hard to be the master of her feelings here. Which there's a lot to be said for not just like being the drama queen every time life hands you a setback, right? And I think Jane is kind of an understated character here, but there's a lot to admire about Jane, even though she's not our heroine, right? 
I could see him with perfect indifference, but I can hardly bear to hear it thus perpetually talked of. My mother means well, but she does not know. No one can know how much I suffer from what she says. While Mrs. Bennett thinks that she's being very tender and sensitive to Jane's feelings and wanting to talk them out or, you know, abuse Mr. Bingley to the neighborhood or whatever, this is only causing Jane pain. And if Mrs. Bennett would even stop for one minute to ask Jane how she's feeling about all of this, they might get some really, really different outcomes here. So I think that is kind of like the cautionary tale in parenting. Also, Elizabeth alludes several times to the fact in this chapter that clearly Bingley is here with Darcy's permission. (laughs) There's this ongoing recognition that Bingley maybe still isn't thinking for himself too well, but Elizabeth, what she would have seen as high-handed before is beginning to see as like Darcy's just kindness to his friend. And in recognizing that Darcy has allowed Bingley to come back, this is kind of renewing Lizzie's hopes also that maybe he could see their situation a little differently. When you were saying that, I was like, we're all a little bit like Mrs. Bennett as parents. I think all parents are like that where they just, you can't possibly understand or know how your kids are feeling or thinking. And so I think we, a lot of times do things and say things that are embarrass them or aren't the, you know, we can't ever, we can't always say the perfect thing or do the perfect thing for them. Yeah, And it seems like there's like this really fine line because you can say too much. You can also say too little. Like, I think that there's a point where they want you to not interfere, but like show that you care just enough by saying just not too much. So it's really, it's hard. It's hard. And I think as parents, we're always embarrassing them. I don't know. I mean, I remember being younger and being embarrassed by my parents and I know my kids are embarrassed by me. So I just think it's funny. Like in 18, whatever, what year is this? Like, like 13 or 10 yeah. or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Almost I mean, it's more than 200 years. Yeah. Kids were embarrassed by their parents. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, Nan. and then you can err on the Mr. Bennett side and either be too indifferent or too sarcastic. And that causes a degree of hurt also. I mean, it works for Elizabeth because she sees the absurdity and she can see that sarcasm, but his inattention in some ways has really hurt, especially his younger daughters. I also think where Mr. Darcy is trying so hard to like be civil, despite how rude her mother has been to him. And she notices that he's more reserved. Um, He's very different than he was at Pemberley. To a degree, we all do this a little bit. We behave differently in different situations. And sometimes that can have really negative consequences, like how when Mr. Darcy first came to Hertfordshire. But Elizabeth, because she's come to see him for who he really is, she's less concerned by this reserve than she was before and recognizes that his reserve might be saying a lot instead of being indifference or pride. She's trying to read his mind here and We'll find out later in some degree he came and he's trying to read her mind too. And they're having very few opportunities to discuss anything in private. There's just one thing that I wanted to say really quickly, and it does kind of go back to the parenting thing, but Mrs. Bennett just keeps saying all these things that you're just like, okay, it's time to be quiet now. But I think the icing on the cake is when she's like, Mr. Bingley, when you have killed all of your birds, feel free to come over here and shoot as many of ours as you want. She's well-meaning, I think, but Lizzie is just, she's dying inside. And she's to the point that she's like, 
we're never going to get over this. We're never going to, she's like, I never want to see them again. And even if I never see them again, I'm still not going to get over this. <laughs> and she's, yeah, she's like, let me never see either one of the other. <laughs> she felt that years of happiness could not make Jane or herself amends for moments of such painful confusion. It was absolutely yes. dreadful and mortifying. So human nature not changing much in 200 years, like this misery and this embarrassment she talks about. The word misery comes up over and over again. Like this is just how she's feeling. Mm. And I do love what Austin, Austin gives us a little hint that she's not going to leave her heroine hanging in this line. Yet the misery for which years of happiness were to offer no compensation received soon afterwards material relief from observing how much the beauty of her sister rekindled the admiration of her former lover. She gives us this little hint, like there's going to be years of happiness to follow. Just, just wait for it. But you can never quite forget how awful it felt to like be unsure, to be rejected. I think this is what people talk about. They're so grateful to never have to date again, right? Because it is this kind of constant state of acute misery. Yep. And wondering and trying to guess how another person is feeling. And And then if you do have kids, you go on repeat with your own children. Like as my kids are entering that age where they're, you know, young adults. And um, for my kids now, I feel like any of their like happiness or distress, a lot of it is stemming from a place of like loneliness and awkwardness. And like, I tried to ask that girl out, but she said no. And I don't know why. And yeah. Yeah. I feel like every time one of my children enters a relationship. Now, when I was a kid and in relationships, I didn't see this, right? I didn't think about the end. Okay. So you're in a relationship with this person. You're either going to get married or you're going to break up and you're going to be really sad or there's going to be a problem. When you're in it, you don't think like that. But as a parent, you're like, okay, this boy is interested in my daughter. Well, he's either going to hurt her (laughs) eventually, like... I don't know. You're excited for him. He's going to be part of our family. Yes. Do you want that? I don't know. It's just funny. As a parent, you're looking at it totally different. But, Which is yeah. why I wish that kids were better at just um, dating as friends and not forming serious attachments, because I think that gives them a kind of a sampling of what kind of person they might be looking for without them like lurching from one like serious relationship to another that, yeah, inevitably like they're going to end it's going to end or like yeah and if you're not really ready to like enter a marriage relationship do you really want a girlfriend for the next six or eight months like yeah right yeah and you just wish they would have walls around their hearts until they're like 25 hindsight is 2020 but then i think too of like some of the most powerful lessons i learned during my life were between age 17 and 25 as, as a direct result of like having your heart broken sometimes or like it's hard to say it. And so you have to look at them and you have to just take big, deep breaths and see that they will make their own mistakes and that they're theirs to make and that it's, it's good for them. That's true. And then just hope you're the kind of parent that when they do fall hard, that it's your shoulder they'll cry on. Oh, I don't like being a parent. (laughs) Nobody told me it would be way harder. It's the best of times and the worst of times. Yes, but nobody told me it would be way harder now than it was when they were little. That seemed so hard. And I was like, I can't wait until I don't have to keep my eye on them all the time. And now not being able to keep your eye on them all the time is worse. So anyways, okay. It's so true. 
So yeah, when my it, son got home from his mission, my my older brother who has like kids in their twenties, he leaned over to me and he said, "Oh, you think you think this part was hard?" He's like, "The next five years will test you like you can't believe." I'm like, "Great, uh, <laughs> yes, neat." <laughs> Looking forward to that. It just gets harder. Okay, but I love this what Nan said about about Bingley not making his own decisions. He now in the next chapter is starting to like think for himself they're at dinner they stay for dinner and Bingley decides he's going to take his seat next to Jane as Elizabeth is watching them she has the idea I think he's going to propose pretty soon like this is moving back to where it was pretty fast while Bingley is sitting next to Jane and they're conversing through the whole dinner Darcy is sitting as far away from Elizabeth as possible at the table. So they're the far ends of the table and he's sitting next to Mrs. Bennett, which probably Elizabeth, I don't know. Can she hear what they're saying? She's probably just worried what they're She can about. just see that they don't talk to each other very much. And when they do, it's very short and polite, but pretty rough. And of course on Mrs. Bennett's side, she's going to be coldly polite. Yes. She's very cold to him this whole time. Right. And she thinks she's being civil, but mostly she's being rude. That's really funny. So I'm just picturing it in my mind. Like you just said, he barely speaks to her. He barely speaks to Elizabeth, which makes her wonder why she ever thought that she might have had a second chance with him after she rejected him. She kept hoping that somehow during the course of the evening that everybody's there, because they did have this kind of large party there at Longbourn, and she's hoping that there would be an opportunity for them to speak. And it just really never happened. And so that was kind of a huge bummer because in her heart, she's hoping that she can kind of pull him aside and, and let him know how grateful she is that she does know what he did for their family. And I think that she's kind of hoping that that will sort of be the jumping off point to like better and deeper conversations and, and to kind of find out where he's standing at that point, but it just never happened. Yeah, she wants it as an opening. They talk about how they ate and hung out and did things after dinner. And then it says Mrs. Bennett had designed to keep the two Netherfield gentlemen to supper. It's like, wait, didn't they just eat? So I wanted to just kind of make a quick commentary here on like just kind of what that looks like because they'll refer to meals and sometimes they use different names than we do. So when I lived in Australia, Meal times like sometimes went by different names than like what we call them here. And I wasn't always clear what people were referring to. You've got breakfast and then usually they would say luncheon instead of lunch. That was usually a really, really light meal. And then usually they talk about tea. So tea is usually like kind of a late afternoon snack that does usually involve like tea or cakes or some other kind of like something. And then you have dinner, which is what they were invited to. And then if you stay up late enough, there might be a supper later on, which is kind of like a later night snack. And then the other thing to realize, too, is when they were in the country, the hours of all of this would be moved up. So breakfast would be maybe between like for the gentry and it would be between like eight and 10 o'clock. A lot of times people would kind of get up and do some stuff first and then go into breakfast. So breakfast wasn't necessarily right when you woke up because If you lived in one of these big houses like this, your servants needed time to get up and prepare everything also. And then that dinner hour might even be at like eight or nine o'clock. That was more in the city. In the country, it would be maybe a little bit earlier. But sometimes these books that are this Regency era book, you might hear them talk about town hours versus country hours. So the town hours, everything's moved back and the parties and stuff they would go to like in London might not start till like nine or 10 p.m., 
And then everybody would sleep really late the next day. This is one reason why, like they talk about it being a country dance. It probably started a few hours earlier than what they were used to. And then there might be like supper or refreshments kind of associated with the dance. So anyway, that's why that seems a little bit off. It's like, well, wait, I thought that they came to eat dinner. Well, they did eat dinner, but then they're talking about she wants to persuade them to stay even later. The other thing that would happen after dinner is the women would stand up and leave and go to like what they would call the drawing room where they would kind of hang out and gossip for maybe 30 minutes while the men would stay at the dinner table and enjoy like an extra glass of like um, some kind of like spirit, usually like a brandy or whiskey, something, whatever they were drinking, right? Cognac, they, they would stay and linger. And then it was like the men would discuss men's business and the women would sort of gossip and then the men would come rejoin them like half an hour later. And then whatever evening entertainments they were going to do, they would do together. That's kind of alluded to in this section. Austin doesn't overtly state those things as much as some other novels that are written about the time period because Austin's in the middle of the time period and her audience would have found it extremely boring to explain these things because, because it was how they lived. I mean, Austin would never have thought that 200 years later, people would be reading her books and be confused by just their culture because she was so in the middle of it. It was hard for her to recognize what might need explanation. Isn't it so fun though? Just, I don't know. I kind of love that they had these very specific sort of rituals and traditions. And I mean, there's a lot about that time period. I'm like, I would probably die of boredom unless I was like a servant or like a farmer or something. But the gentry, I'm like, oh my gosh, that would be so boring most of the time. But I still love that they, these specific rituals and just, this is just the way it's done. And it's kind of, I don't know. It's addressed in that movie. I take all their phones from them and then they're like bored out of their mind and they have to like sit and embroider and it's just like, why are we doing this? And as soon as it's dark, like the the night is pretty much over because yeah. they, they have like some lamplight. But other than that, candles no- might be expensive. And yeah. and her one friend in that says um, something along the lines of like, I hate arts and crafts because they have, <laughs> that's like all the women expected to do. What movie is that? Austin Land. Oh, okay. You know, this idea of accomplishment, this is part of the reason these girls would like develop these talents is it was like to fill the hours, right? Because they they weren't taught like domestic arts. So when it was like they were these girls of their class early in the book, Mr. Collins sort of implies like, which of my cousins helped prepare this meal? And Miss Bennett is offended that he would imply that her daughter's spent time in the kitchen so they weren't even like really taught like the domestic arts it's more just their value lies in being decorative and they were taught how to run a household but not necessarily the underlying how do you actually run a household it was like how do you oversee they're yeah. more managers and actual right. like how do you talk to your housekeeper and order dinner which right. go with which meat Right. All those finer points, but okay. So jumping into 55. uh, So we finally come to it. Mr. Bingley proposes. He has finally now arrived several times by himself because Darcy has gone into London. And one time he shows up when it's like very early in the morning. It's like unannounced. Nobody's even dressed and ready for the day. In fact, 
one of the servants, I believe it's Hill, she's doing Kitty's hair and Mrs. Bennett has seen Bingley coming down the path to their house and she's just just like frantic and she's running around. She's like, Jane, make haste and hurry down. He has come. And she tells their servant, go do Jane's hair first. And Jane's like, well, Kitty is just about ready. Like have her go down first. Mrs. Bennett says, hey, Kitty, what has she got to do with anything? It's a really funny moment. It really is. You could, And this is when, I don't know about the 2005 version, but I feel like they captured it really well in the 1995 version. She's They're so all just real. That Mrs. Bennett in the 95 version is so surreal. It's like, I, I want to hear that actress's real voice because I'm like, there's no way she really talks like this. No, I know. In fact, I actually watched like some interviews with her and she's, she's like this lovely delightful woman but yeah as mrs bennett she's just hilarious and just rocks it but and in the movie versions it kind of shows that this is when bingley proposes when he just shows up totally unannounced first thing in the morning it's actually not on this day mrs bennett is doing everything in her power to get jane and bingley alone so that he can propose (laughs) like she's a very designing woman to the point of, again, a lot more mortification. So they're like sitting in this room together. Mary has found a reason to leave because she doesn't want to be there anyway. And Lizzie looks over and sees that her mother is just winking at her and Kitty like crazy. <laughs> She's like, oh my gosh. She knows exactly what Mrs. Bennett is trying to get them to do. And she's like, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not leaving. And, and Kitty, so dumb. but she's just this young and totally ignorant teenager. And she's just like, why are you winking at me, mama? What am I to do? One of those moments that, especially as a parent, you just feel it so much because you're like, oh my gosh, you weren't supposed to say anything. Like now you just made the situation worse. She does actually like get everybody out of the room and gets Jane and Bingley on their own, but like they just talk like nothing really comes of it. But then things just become a little more comfortable after this. Mr. Bennett and Bingley actually spend the morning together one day and they find that they actually like each other more than they thought they would. And then finally, there is sort of a repeat of Mrs. Bennett trying to get everybody away from Jane and Bingley. And finally, it does happen that he does propose. And Elizabeth, actually, she goes to check on them and she walks in right as it's like they're conversing very intimately in front of the fireplace. And they immediately like, oh, you know, they jump apart. They jump apart. Somebody walked in on us. And Bingley goes right away and, and talks to Mr. Bennett and Jane lets Lizzie know that they are engaged. They have dinner and Mr. and Mrs. Bennett kind of give their congratulations to Jane in their own kind of interesting and strange ways. Mr. Bennett is like, he is very happy about it. He he really likes Bingley and he knows that um, Bingley really likes Jane and Jane really likes Bingley. And they know that he knows that they're going to be happy. He's like, you are each of you so complying that nothing will ever be resolved on so easy that every servant will cheat you and so generous that you will always exceed your income. That's kind of his sort of sarcastic way of saying you guys are, are, well matched, you know, Mrs. Bennett, she's like, Oh, Jane, I knew you couldn't be so beautiful for nothing. You know, this is what it's all about. And we've achieved. And then after this, Bingley is there just every day, you know, as you would, he tells everything to Jane. He tells her that he had no idea that she was in London, but he since found out that she was there. And he's just, he was 
quite angry about it. We find out about that more later. He didn't tell her how he recently found out that she'd been in London, but Jane assumes that it was his sisters that had kept it from him. And she's like, yeah, we're never going to have the same relationship as before. And Jane also tells Lizzie. He didn't bring the sisters this time either. Right, right. They, yeah. yeah. Darcy and I think Darcy maybe even had some machinations there, was careful to keep the sisters away. It made a huge difference. I, I would imagine so. Yeah, because, yeah, they needed to be gone. They needed to be gone for a while. So something else that Jane had found out from Bingley is he admitted to her. He's like, I loved you so much at Christmas time. Basically he was ready to propose and he'd gone to town. He was going to come back. He had every intention of that, but then he'd been persuaded that she was indifferent to him. And that's why he hadn't come back. And something that Lizzie says and she and Jane talk about is that that was kind of a credit to his modesty. And you think, well, what does that even mean? And it really was just that he was not so full of himself that he was like, well, she's going to accept me no matter because it's me. I'm Bingley. He had enough humility that he was like, oh, maybe she really doesn't like me. So I'm not going to pursue this. I'm not just going to assume that um, she likes me more than she does. And the last part of that chapter, Jane is like, Lizzie, I just want to see you as happy as I am. And Lizzie is like, you can give me 40 men just like Bingley and I would never be as happy as you are because until I have your goodness, I can never have your happiness. Which Lizzie is an extremely good and quality, very high quality woman, but she is also quite humble and she sees the areas that she needs to improve on and she's working on those areas. And then it is funny because it talks about how the Bennett speedily became pronounced to be the luckiest family in the area where not very long before because of the whole Lydia and Wickham scandal, they had been pronounced the most unlucky family, but how the tides have turned. <laughs> it's kind of a funny little side note. It's actually a little housemaid that is dressing their hair. It's not Mrs. Hill. Usually it is Mrs. Oh, yeah. servant, it usually is Mrs. Hill, but this one is Sarah. And it's the only time I think Sarah's name is mentioned in the book. Oh, and right. the Here, book Sarah. long. Okay. Longborn, that's kind of like the upstairs downstairs story I had mentioned a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. The main character is Sarah, the housemaid. Oh, fun. So she cool. is only mentioned once, and some other author kind of took that and ran with it in the time period. It's a darker book than this one because it's told from a very different viewpoint. And I really, really enjoyed it. So it's not for everybody, but if you're kind of a if you're kind of a Downton Abbey fan, you like that kind of upstairs, downstairs sort of a thing. Longbourn is a really fun look at the underbelly of this family. One of my favorite lines, actually, Amity, is that one you read, until I have your disposition, your goodness, I can never have your happiness. I think it goes back to this idea that our happiness really is dependent on the focus of our lives, not necessarily the circumstances of our lives. And I think Jane is one of those people who is probably going to find a way to be pretty placid and happy and peaceful. And I think it's because she tries to see the good in people. She doesn't overlook any blessing that she's ever given. She's kind and generous with her time. She has a lot of empathy. All of these things are going to make her less susceptible to like ups and downs of life. I love that idea. If we want to be happy, then what we should do within our disposition is focus on being good. And if you focus on being good, focus on the right things, you know, thinking of like, focus of your life, whatever that's going to be. And that's thinking in a religious context as well. You know, if we're focused on the right things, if we focus on becoming good and doing good, 
then happiness is going to increase. I just think that's a really sweet line. Yeah. I really love that. I was listening the other day to a podcast by these two very brilliant, brilliant men. And they were talking about how truth is an antidote to suffering and how this perpetual victim mentality really does keep people in misery because they really feel like there's nothing they can do about their circumstance. So instead, when you say, no, actually, there is something that you can do, and maybe some of your suffering is actually your fault, that actually empowers them more than you might think it would because they go, oh, I actually do have some control over my life instead of thinking, giving all the control to everybody else. And that really is what Jane does consistently. No matter what, there's something good here. There's something to be grateful for. And that's what that's what these guys were really talking about is like finding the things to be grateful for, finding the things that we have control over and taking back that control over our lives. Instead and of being acted upon. Yes, so exactly. The All In podcast this week, this summer, they have been so good because the host had a baby. And so they're just revisiting like older episodes and they, I mean, I just can't believe how good they were, have been, but this one was about these two guys were talking about like meditation. What they brought up was that we can't avoid pain in life, but we can avoid suffering and suffering is like resisting our circumstances, wanting them to be different. If we can accept what our circumstances are, then we can avoid suffering. I mean, things are going to happen to us, but it's like how we think about it and how we handle it makes all the difference in our experience of it. And it's funny because thinking of that, I heard a quote this week too, where somebody was asked, what do you mean you're grateful for like your suffering or not suffering or the hard things that have happened to you? He said, well, here's the thing. I am so grateful to be alive. It's like, I love being alive to have challenges, to have setbacks is part of the human condition. And so I have to be grateful for all of it because it's inevitable And I want to be here. I don't want to be dead. I'm grateful to be alive. And so that means I have to be grateful for all of this too, because that is, it comes together. Okay. On to Lady Catherine de Berg. Yes, this is, it's so good because. I think I underlined the whole chapter. I think I did too. And I was like, how do I even summarize this? Like we could spend a lot of time talking about this because Lizzie is attacked, attacked, attacked. Her rebuttals are complete, just logic, logic point, logic point, logic point. Like it's, it's beautiful. Oh my gosh. Lady Catherine comes to call. And it's kind of funny because Bingley is there as he's there like every single day. And he's, (laughs) they see this carriage pull up. They didn't, they don't recognize it. And then Lady Catherine gets out. And of course, Lizzie is the only one who has seen her. I would imagine that Bingley is familiar with her, but he's like, so Jane, let's go for a walk. Let's leave. He wants to get out of there. Um, he walked I, away into the shrubbery. Into the shrubbery. Exactly. Exactly. Like they're so hiding. They're not just like walking away. It's like, let's disappear. Of course, they invite her into the house and she's immediately just very abrupt. She's very rude. She has no, there's no graciousness there at all. And Mrs. Bennett is, she's kind of flattered that this great lady has come to visit. And so she's trying to be very gracious and kind, but... Uh, Lady Catherine does not return in kind. She's just she's just rude the entire time. She like insults their house. She insults the room that they're in, and she very it's a, she very resolutely and not very politely declines eating anything. 
which, you know, of course they're going to offer her probably like some tea or some refreshment of some kind. No, no. There's like this pretty little wilderness area that she's observed. And so she wants to take a turn in it and she wants Elizabeth to accompany her. And of course, she's not somebody who accepts no as an answer. And so Elizabeth goes with her and she's like, I'm not starting the conversation. She's been so rude. I'm not going to give her any consideration here. They're walking along. Lady Catherine pretty much stops her. And she's like, you know why I'm here. And Lizzie's like, no, I don't. I can't imagine. <laughs> Lady Catherine says, she says, my character has ever been celebrated for its sincerity and frankness. And I just, I had to underline that and write a note and just say, she is literally the only one who has celebrated her frankness and sincerity. No one else appreciates it. Well, except for maybe Mr. Collins, but he's just like a different. Everybody else does not like her. Like, let's be honest here. No one likes her. No one appreciates how just rude and, and frank she is. And she says, I was told that not only your sister was on the point of being most advantageously married, but that you, that Miss Elizabeth Bennett would in all likelihood be soon afterwards united to my nephew. And here is her point of anger. She is appalled to think that her nephew would tie himself to Miss Elizabeth Bennett. Basically, she says that she's has immediately set out for Longbourn. To have Lizzie universally declare that she would have nothing to do with this, that this is not true, that she's not attached to her nephew in any way. I really love the ensuing conversation because Lizzie continually neither confirms nor denies any of it. Just this back and forth. And and she's basically like, look, if you knew it couldn't be true, why did you come? And basically your coming makes it look like a confirmation to the whole neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, you're just helping that argument. And then Lady Catherine is like, well, he's engaged to my daughter. So now what have you got to say? And Lizzie's like, well, if he is, then then why are you here again? Like, <laughs> He's engaged. Then there shouldn't be an issue, should there? And yet you're here. You know, she talks about how Lady Catherine talks about how, well, it's it's unusual because it's something that when they were babies, you know, I'm sure that Mr. Darcy is quite a bit older than than Anne de Burke, But so when they were little, Darcy's mother and Lady Catherine had decided that they wanted their kids to get married. And Lizzie's like, OK, well, I'm pretty sure he can make his own choice. What does she say? Why is not he to make another choice? And if I am that choice, why may not I accept him? And Lady Catherine then just, she is so just insulting in the things that she says. She's like, basically, you are so beneath him and all of honor and decorum and prudence interest forbid that he would ever propose to you. Your name would not be spoken by our family. Your alliance would be a disgrace. Elizabeth is like, oh, well, that would be unfortunate, wouldn't it? But she says, but the wife of Mr. Darcy must have, have such extraordinary sources of happiness necessarily attached to her situation that she could, upon the whole, have no cause to repine. So basically, she's like, I wouldn't be mentioned by you guys. Oh, well, <laughs> have you seen Pemberley? <laughs> wouldn't that be a shame? <laughs> so... Well, and after how rude she'd been to her, she's like, so you mean I could have Mr. Darcy and never have to speak to you again? What's yeah. the downside? Yeah, exactly. I haven't seen an issue yet. So, and then Lady Catherine tries, she just, she uses manipulation. She tries to guilt trip her. All the things I did for you while you were 
just when she was visiting the Collinses at Rosings Park and everything, all the things I did for you, doesn't that deserve some consideration? So I'm going to say no to happiness for the rest of my life because you were nice to it, which she was never even nice. Like she was always. I think she might even say after the condescension I showed you. Uh, right. I think it's a good right. thing to be condescended right. to. I lowered myself. Self to be kind to you. you. Yes. Yeah. 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 And now you can't appreciate that. Yeah. Yes. But just kind of classic, very uppity bully tactics. So finally, though, Lady Catherine says, once and for all, are you engaged to Mr. Darcy? I think Elizabeth is really battling with what to say, but she finally just says, no, I'm not. And Lady Catherine says, well, I need you to promise that you're never going to enter into an engagement with him. And Elizabeth is like, I will never make that promise. You can't make me and I'm not going to. And I feel like this section here reads like a script. And I feel like this one in the 95 version, Elizabeth L. Just her delivery of these lines as Elizabeth is so perfect. Like I can never read this section now without hearing her voice in my head. In the Kiera Knightley version, it's Judy Dench that plays Lady Catherine de Bourgh mm-hmm. and she's wonderful, but they stage the whole thing a little differently. It's they at do. night, they're in the house. Elizabeth almost like loses her temper here. She's really, really upset and it's played just in a different way. It's good. But I tell you, Elizabeth L's like quiet dignity when they're out walking in, and she looks the way she's dressed like in her little Spencer jacket and just her delivery of these lines is just, I mean, it's perfect. It is perfect. Yeah. Yeah. She, yeah. yeah. She, and, she, and the lines are perfect. I mean, Austin has written a screenplay for us before there was even such a thing as a screenplay. This dialogue is, and anybody who messes with this really screws this scene up. I agree. And that is one thing in the Keira Knightley version that I was like, we lost so much in that particular scene because in the 95 version, they pretty much do. They pretty much take this section and use it as the exact script. And um, I feel like the the biggest mistake in the Keira Knightley version is they should have added half an hour to it. At least. Yes. I feel like they tried to like take enough out to make it a feature length film that they just they lost too much. Yeah. That was my biggest argument against it as well. Well, then Lady Catherine like launches into another attack because she's like, what about your sister? Like I've heard about that and how she's disgraced and how your uncles and your father had to pay a whole bunch of money to make this thing happen. So, which indicates again, that she has no idea about the part that Mr. Darcy played. It is it has been kept very under wraps to where it's really only the gardeners and Lizzie and of course, Lydia that know. Well, but, but I don't know to what extent Lydia really knows. I don't know that she knows how much money he paid. Lady Catherine is just talking about how, what a disgrace it would be for her nephew to be connected to Lizzie when she has this horrible sister. And she's like, aren't you thinking about my nephew at all? And like how much this would disgrace him. One of the lines that I really love, and this is earlier on, but it does kind of wrap things up in a way. Lizzie is like, look, he's a gentleman and I'm a gentleman's daughter. We are equal. And Elizabeth says, neither duty nor honor nor gratitude have any possible claim on me in the present instance. No principle of either would be violated by my marriage with Mr. Darcy. And with regard to the resentment of his family or the indignation of the world, if the former were excited by his marrying me, it would not give me one moment's concern. I 
don't care what his family thinks of me. And she says, and the world in general would have too much sense to join in the scorn because Lady Catherine is acting like the entire world would be incensed if they were joined. And Elizabeth is like, let's think about that for a minute. No, the world wouldn't. They wouldn't care. And so this basically ends the conversation. And Lady Catherine is like, well, then I know what I'm going to do. And she passively, aggressively says that she's going to persuade Darcy to not ever propose to Elizabeth. I am going to carry the point and I'm not used to disappointment and nobody says no to me without serious consequence. And then she leaves very ungraciously. And of course, Mrs. Bennett is wondering what in the heck just happened, but Lizzie feels it best to not say anything because again, going back to what you said, Nan, like she has hidden a lot over the past several months. She's got quite the pile of secrets building up in her. And this is a huge one as well. So the first film version that I saw of Pride and Prejudice, because I read it probably, well, it might've even been the late eighties. I probably read it the first time by 1990. So the BBC version wasn't even out yet that afterwards. The first film version I saw, because my mom had really liked it was there was a version that came out in 1940 that I think won some Academy Awards or something, but it was Greer Garson and Laurence Olivier who were both in their mid thirties when they played these two parts, you know, it's black and white. So I think people tend to look younger in black and white, but even then, like, I felt like they looked really old. Like it wasn't like how I thought about it or pictured it. They seemed so adult. They play this scene really differently in the 1940 Mm -hmm. version and they changed the script quite a lot, but it's where the aunt Catherine Berg comes to have kind of a grudging respect for Elizabeth and basically signs off on the marriage. So she does like a 180. I remember my mom saying once she, she liked that actually. And it always bothered me. So when the new version came out and Lady Catherine stays very intractable in all of this, I appreciated that a lot more. The other thing that's funny, I love the line, are the shades of Pemberley to be thus polluted? This is a line that my mom and I laugh about sometimes. And if something like dramatic or silly happens or somebody is like overstating how bad things are going to be that's a line my mom will use oh are the shades of Pemberley to be thus polluted it really is like such a great line such a drama queen yeah (laughs) I just um and again like the delivery I don't know the actress's name I wish I knew it but the lady who plays Lady Catherine in the Jennifer L and Colin Firth version is she's pretty awesome as well and yes I like I respect and love Judy Dench as an actress, but I just feel like this other lady just permanent scowl, the permanent scowl, like her face is just heavy with anger all the time. And she's yeah, all the shades of Pemberley to be thus polluted. polluted. And she's got like her walking stick that she plants when she says it. It's like a big Yes, it's so, so great. It's always more fun to play the villain. There's some great lines. Lady Catherine (laughs) has some great lines. Chapter 57 is very, very short. In the aftermath of Lady Catherine's visit, she cannot figure out, first of all, where the rumor got started and who sent that information along. That kind of continues to be a big mystery is where... You know, unless she can figure that maybe because they heard about Bingley's engagement, because she knew she was in the neighborhood, maybe she had been more concerned about Darcy's attention to Elizabeth when they were at Rosings Park than she realized. Well, she keeps trying to read Mr. Darcy's mind. You know, he he came with Bingley. Obviously, he signed off on that marriage. If he has no objection to 
his friend marrying Jane, maybe he wouldn't have any objection to marrying her. I mean, she has no doubt that his aunt is going to go back and report everything to Mr. Darcy. And she doesn't know if he'll be more swayed by his aunt and his family connections than he will be by his own feelings. She says this about um, Mr. Darcy, about whether or not he'll be constant. I shall then give over every expectation, every wish of his constancy. If he is satisfied with only regretting me when he might have obtained my affections and my hand, I shall soon cease to regret him at all. So she's basically just saying, oh, I can get over him if I'm just going to be a regret to him when, you know, he could have had my affection in my hand, but I can get over it. She thinks she can get over it. Her dad. So again, more lies by omission. Her dad gets a letter from Mr. Collins and Mr. Collins is very much on Catherine DeBerg's side in all of this debacle, right? He thinks it's hilarious because he is so he calls Elizabeth and he's like, you're never going to believe this letter I got from Mr. Collins. He reads through the whole thing. and He's like, well, can you guess the man that this letter's talking about? And she's like, um, and he's <laughs> Mr. Darcy, you see, is the man. Now, Lizzie, I think I have surprised you. Could he or the Lucases have pitched on any man within the circle of our acquaintance whose name would have given the lie more effectually to what they related? Mr. Darcy who never even looks at a woman but to see a blemish and who probably never looked at you in his life. And so Elizabeth must just have an expression on her face because then her dad's like, well, aren't you diverted? Like, don't you think this is funny? And she's like, yeah, it's hilarious. <laughs> Let's keep talking. She doesn't even know what to say. It feels like this whole thing has been so secretive too. Yeah, Darcy would never be public about his admiration of me. You know, it's easy to buy into what her dad says. He only looks at women to see problems and he's probably never looked at me in his life. And he's kept this all a big secret and nobody knows this is happening. One of the best lines here comes from her dad. One of the best lines, I think. He's talking about just Mr. Collins' letter and how humorous he thinks it is. And he says, but Lizzie, you look as if you didn't enjoy it. You're not going to be missish, I hope, and pretend to be affronted at an idle report. For what do we live but to make sport for our neighbors and to laugh at them in our turn? So again, his kind of simple philosophy of life, it's about like finding these absurdities both in yourself and in others and then just laughing about them, which is not the worst. There's value to it. There is There's value some value it. there. It's not the worst attitude to have because life throws some dumb things at you sometimes. And if you cry about everything, you will be very sad. So sometimes it's just easier to laugh. And then again, Elizabeth has to like emphasize, oh, I'm excessively diverted. It's just so strange. So just, just like a couple of things is that, first of all, it is revealed that that's how Lady Catherine knew about this whole thing is that the Lucases had talked to Charlotte and Mr. Collins and then Charlotte and Mr. Collins had related to Lady Catherine. And so it was kind of the Lucases who because he tells her everything. Right, right, right. Exactly. Sort of this like gossip chain. That's how because Elizabeth was like, how in the world did this even begin, you know? And so that kind of answered that question. And then I think that she was a little bit saddened by the fact that her dad wouldn't think that Mr. Darcy would even look at her. Yeah, that just kind of like broke her heart a little. <laughs> so, and it does, of course, it makes her, it makes her question everything. But I think a lot of it too was like, oh, my dad wouldn't even think that Mr. Darcy would ever look at me. Ouch. And it's the so. man who, up to this point in her life, it's the man who's probably shown her the most respect. She knows her father right. loves her and that she's a favorite of yeah. his. And yeah, I think that's a good point. Like even my own dad thinks this 
it not even so much that it would be a mistake, but that it could never happen. Yeah. So he says at the very end, he says, had they fixed on any other man, it would have been nothing, but his perfect indifference and your pointed dislike make it so delightfully absurd. And then it says at the end, her father had most cruelly mortified her by what he had said of Mr. Darcy's indifference. And she could do nothing but wonder at such a want of penetration or fear that perhaps instead of seeing too little, she might have fancied too much. I like that. That maybe her dad's right. I just want them to be able to have a chance to talk to each other. Right. But I think some of what happens is there's been so much awkwardness and difficulty between them. You know, the time they communicated the most, they said the most to each other was that horrible proposal that went awry. And then they were talking more at Pemberley and that looked like it was going in a really, really good direction. Then everything with Lydia came up and made it all horrible and awkward again. So I just feel like part of the problem is they're never going to get to have a proper conversation. So as we go into chapter 58, they finally get a chance. And because they decide to take a walk and they go outside it makes it more appropriate for them to kind of like pair off and be on their own. There's five of them that go kitties with them. Bingley and Jane sort of fall behind. And I think this is another evidence too of like, even though with everything that's happened with Lydia, this is still kind of like a lack of supervision here. They've essentially sent Kitty to chaperone this couple. From my reading in this time period and other things, this would not always be like really acceptable. They would... They've kind of left these girls to their own devices again, showing that even though things happened with Lydia, they haven't fully changed how they're approaching these girls. Bingley and Jane fall behind. The conversation that, that Lizzie really needs to have with Darcy cannot be had in front of anybody else. So thankfully, they pass by the Lucases and she goes to see Mariah Lucas. So then it's just the two of them. And then I love this. Very little was said by any. Kitty was too afraid of him to talk. Elizabeth was secretly forming a desperate resolution. And perhaps he might be doing the same. So they know this is it. Like they've got to have it out. Like they just finally have to talk. So they go on together. And that is the first thing she does is she apologizes or not apologizes. She thanks him for helping their sister. He is surprised And he says, I didn't think Mrs. Gardner would tell you that because he figures that's the source of the information. She emphasizes, oh, she didn't want to tell. I pumped it out of her after um, my sister let it slip. Anyway, he did not ever intend to be thanked for this, but she uses it. And she knows that, but she needs it as an opening. She also wants to acknowledge, like, I know that my family has been awful to you since you've been here. And you have to realize they didn't know any of this. And then he says this very sweet line. He says, if you will thank me, let it be for yourself alone, that the wish of giving happiness to you might add force to other inducements, which led me on. I shall not attempt to deny your family owe me nothing much as I respect them. I believe I thought only of you. And even though she finally gets him to admit it, this is also like embarrassing to her. She's kind of shy again. And then he finally gets his proposal right. You are too generous to trifle with me. If your feelings are still what they were last April, tell me so at once. My affections and wishes are unchanged, but one word from you will silence me on this subject forever. Now, this is the one place where I feel like Austin fails us. And I just have to say it. (laughs) Austin describes their interaction after this without giving us the dialogue. Yeah. And in movie versions, they attempt to like fill something in there or they leave some silence, right? But it just, 
I don't know. It kind of makes me sad. Just like a whole novel's worth of brilliant dialogue. And when it comes to Elizabeth's response and what he says, you know, the happiness which this reply induced, what reply? We didn't get the reply, was such he probably had never felt before. And he expressed himself on the occasion as sensibly and warmly as a man violently in love can be supposed to do. What did he say? Like, yeah. So I love Jane dearly. And I feel like she should spend a little more time on this paragraph. Because I 100% agree. And I always feel like in the movie versions, I'm like, that's yeah. not what she should say. But I don't know what she, but maybe Jane Austen, Austen didn't know what they should, what she should say. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, okay, I got him to this point. But like, now what? <laughs> you know, yeah. what is she supposed to say? But she's so good in every other aspect of this. That So I think there's another line here that says, um, had Elizabeth been able to encounter his eyes, so she can't look at him, she might have seen how well the expression of heartfelt delight diffused over his face became him. And though she couldn't look at him, she could listen. And so I think this idea too, this is another one of those arguments that people might make for Mr. Darcy having some spectrum behaviors here is that his face is not always like super expressive, but when he feels this joy with Elizabeth, he suddenly has expression on his face. And then they realize that yes, his aunt did indeed come to talk to him, but it completely backfired. I knew enough of your disposition to be certain that had you absolutely irrevocably decided against me, you would have acknowledged it to Lady Catherine, frankly and openly. And then Elizabeth laughed. She blushes and said, yes, you know enough of my frankness to believe me capable of that. After abusing you so abominably to your face, I could have no scruple in abusing you to all your relations. And then what did you not say to me that I didn't deserve? And then they go through... I, again, I've got every line in this section <laughs> underlined. Um, they go through and have this really frank, finally frank conversation about the letter, about this thing that's been the elephant in the room for months now. They finally kind of talk it out. She acknowledges that she was in the wrong, that the letter made her see him in a new light. And he acknowledges that he's like, I thought I was in a good frame of mind when I wrote the letter, but I'm not sure I was. It says, I hope you destroyed the letter. And she's like, no way. She's like, I'm keeping this forever. And then they both acknowledge, when I wrote the letter, I believe myself perfectly calm and cool, but I'm since convinced it was written in a dreadful bitterness of spirit. The letter began in bitterness, but it did not end. So um, think only of the past as its remembrance gives you pleasure. And then he goes on to say this, which is just lovely. I've been a selfish being all my life in practice, though not in principle. As a child, I was taught what was right, but I was not taught to correct my temper. I was given good principles, but left to follow them in pride and conceit. I was spoiled by my parents, allowed, encouraged, almost taught me to be selfish and overbearing, to care for none beyond my own family circle, to think meanly of all the rest of the world, to wish at least to think meanly of their sense and worth compared to my own. Such I was from eight to eight and 20, and such I might still have been, but for you, Dearest, loveliest Elizabeth, what do I not owe you? You taught me a lesson hard indeed at first, but most advantageous. By you, I was properly humbled. I came to you without a doubt of my reception. You showed me how insufficient were all my pretensions to please a woman worthy of being pleased. Oh, it's just beautiful. Right? And not reality. <laughs> And maybe not reality. People don't talk that way anymore. <laughs> no, um, and like a man, I mean, like we talked about this earlier, like 
the Darcy effect. This doesn't happen. Effect. That's it. That is the Darcy effect right there. And this is why I think Austin ends up like kind of in that book, Austin land, that main character, what she discovers is that she's been ruined for other men. And part of it is this idea here is that a man would fall for you so completely that he would recognize his flaws and that he would do a 180 to be worthy of you. Elizabeth has changed throughout this book too, but there's less emphasis on the changes that Elizabeth has had to make, I think, and more on the changes Darcy made. And that I think is where like the romance comes in, I guess. And then how you must have hated me after that evening. Hate you. I was angry at first, but my anger soon began to take proper direction. Um, anyway, it's just all very, very sweet. Um, so they basically, uh, become engaged and he intends to go talk to her father and, um, oh, and this is, this is evidence here. We see evidence of Elizabeth's growth also. Um, so he acknowledges his role in making sure Bingley came, Bingley came back to Netherfield and then says the last paragraph of that chapter says this Elizabeth longed to observe that Mr. Bingley had been a most delightful friend, so easily guided that his worth was invaluable. But she checked herself. She remembered that he had yet to learn to be laughed at, and it was rather too early to begin. I think that is kind of sweet there in recognizing, like, in time, he's going to learn to laugh at himself, and I'm going to teach him how to do that but he's not quite ready yet for me to poke that much fun at him. She shows um, some good restraint there, I think. And that is a line too, that they kind of pull that out. I think that piece out and they put it into that uh, 2005 version proposal. When she rejects him at first, he says, are you rejecting me? And then his next thing is, are you laughing at me? Because she often has, right? This is something Darcy still needs to learn is to learn to be laughed at. And I like to think after years and years of marriage and children and all of these things, Darcy will eventually learn to laugh at himself. I think after so. 59. I have a good question for you at the end of this one. That night, I mean, all this happens and Jane has no idea that Elizabeth has changed her feelings towards him. So that night, Elizabeth tells her everything. And at first, Jane thinks that she's joking because she thought that Elizabeth hated him. But then Elizabeth explains how her feelings had gradually changed. Jane is super excited for her and happy about the situation. So the next morning when Darcy and Bingley arrive, Mrs. Bennett is apologizing to Elizabeth for her having to go on these walks with Darcy because she still thinks he's this horrible guy. and. Elizabeth would never want to spend time with him. Later, Darcy goes in and speaks privately with Mr. Bennett. That's when he asks for his permission to marry Elizabeth. And then Mr. Bennett, you guys would explain this way better than me, but when Mr. Bennett calls Elizabeth back in, he asks her, why would you want to marry a man that you hate? And then Elizabeth explains everything. Finally, after she explains everything, Mr. Bennett gives his blessing for them. So that night, Elizabeth tells her mother the news. At first, she's shocked, but then she says that this shows, to me, this shows her total. She's, she's a nut. Fit. Yes. She's like, you're going to be rich. Like, you're going to be richer than your sister, Jane. Who thinks that like that? And who's, I mean, even if you do think like that, who says it out loud? I mean, can you imagine when your daughters comes to you and 
says, I'm getting married. And you're like, oh, you're going to be richer than your sister. This is great. <laughs> yeah, I like this too, that Elizabeth is worried that his, her mother is going to continually embarrass Mr. Darcy, like throughout the rest of their life. There's no end to this, but in the end, she actually treats him respectably because she's kind of intimidated. And so she's quiet. So here's my question for you guys. And I mean, I'm just, like I said, I am not as familiar with this story or the book. So the very last paragraph, Mr. Bennett says, I admire all my three sons-in-law highly. Wickham perhaps is my favorite, but I think I shall like your husband quite as well as James. He's joking, right? He's totally joking. Because earlier he'd even like gone off on how Wickham was such a hypocrite and he's really quite awful. And so, yes, this is just one of those moments that it's like Jane and Lizzie have married so, so much better than Lydia. Their husbands are these respectable, very excellent gentlemen. Of course he likes them. And he like genuinely likes them. You can see him like making an effort at developing a relationship and he's like pleasantly surprised at how much he likes them. In an earlier chapter when Wickham left, he's like, he simpers and makes love to us all. Like he's, he's basically saying he's kind of a charming snake. The other line that I liked here that I think is so funny is basically Jane is like, when did you start loving him? And she says, it's been coming on me so gradually. I hardly know when it began but I believe I must date it from my first seeing his beautiful grounds at Pemberley. Mm -hmm. This is another one of those lines where Elizabeth is being a little bit facetious because it probably had been coming on even before that. By the time she walked onto his grounds at Pemberley, she had largely forgiven him. She understood from his letter that she had misunderstood everything. And then, yeah, she sees the grounds and she's like, wow, of all of this, I might've been mistress. She kind of begins to see things from his viewpoint, almost like, you know, he really did like lower himself a lot to propose to me. And I don't think she feels like she's not a good catch, but it's more along the lines of like, wow, okay, now I, now I'm starting to see things from his perspective. I still don't agree with him. And he expressed himself very poorly, but I can see his perspective. And, but I always thought that was so funny. It's like, well, once I saw his huge house, I was more inclined. I think we kind of talked about it before, but I just underlined where Mrs. Bennett, you know, she's kind of flying off and she's, oh, this is so wonderful. And then she says, my dearest child, I can think of nothing else. 10,000 a year and very likely more. Tis as good as a Lord and a special license. You must and shall be married by a special license. I feel like we did talk before about how like you pretty much had to be married in a certain parish. Like you had to be married at that parish where you lived or whatever. But I was like, what is a special license? So my and understanding of the special license is it would allow you to get married without having the bans read, but not everybody could be granted a special license. And sometimes it was only, it was almost like an archbishop had to sign off on it. So you kind of had to know somebody to get a special license. Mm -hmm. It wasn't available like easily to everybody. It's not like they would need to get a special license necessarily. Usually it was to kind of have a, a faster marriage. He might know somebody or have the money to be able to obtain one, or it would just be another way of kind of elevating her above her neighbors. And that makes sense. I feel like this is not the absolute authority, but it just, I looked it up a little bit and it just says, 
A special license enabled a couple to marry not only in a parish church, but anywhere they wished, for example, the bride's home. A special license, therefore, is very desirable for anyone who wished to have privacy when marrying. And I don't imagine them necessarily really wanting privacy, but maybe, maybe Mrs. Bennett was like, you should get married here or you should get married at Pemberley. Like, I don't know. Maybe wonder if she wanted them to get married somewhere besides the church. Yeah, no, that, that could have been it too. Um, or to have like a more private, more, um, elite kind of yeah. an affair. Yeah. You know, they don't really talk about the wedding and the book when they do show it. They often show Elizabeth and Jane getting married at the same time, which I think is really, really sweet. They got engaged at the same time. I think the four of them are probably quite good friends. It's pretty sweet at the beginning of this chapter. When they show up to the house, um, Bingley clearly has been given knowledge of this. The way he looks at her and shakes her hand, it's clear that he knows. He makes sure they get rid of Kitty, too, so the two couples can go out walking together. And I think it's kind of sweet. This is like an ideal situation where the four of them could have like this kind of lifelong friendship. And it seems like they will. So chapter 60, it's pretty short, but there seems to be, I I wrote a lot down. So (laughs) Elizabeth and Darcy have a conversation about everything that has happened. He admits to her that he liked her mind. Now she says, now be sincere. Did you admire me for my impertinence? And he says, for the liveliness of your mind, I did. I think that's really sweet. And then he's impertinent. He's like putting a good spin on it. And he's like, I can't really pinpoint when it happened when I fell in love with you, but it just kind of happened along the way. Then there's a bunch of letter writing. Elizabeth writes a letter to Mrs. Gardner to tell her about the engagement. Darcy writes a letter to his aunt (laughs) to also tell her about the engagement. And then Mr. Bennett writes to Mr. Collins. Love this letter. He says, I must trouble you once more for congratulations. Elizabeth will soon be the wife of Mr. Darcy. Console Lady Catherine as well as you can. But if I were you, I would stand by the nephew. He has more to give. And I love how it's short and just like. It's also like a big old poking at him. Like I know what you're about, Mr. Collins. Yes. So him. So Mr. Collins and Charlotte, they soon come to visit to congratulate Elizabeth and Darcy. And also to get away from Lady Catherine because she is very upset and. They want to steer clear of her. And then Georgiana writes to Elizabeth saying how happy she is to be gaining a sister. And then another funny one is Caroline writing to Jane. And it's like full of empty congratulations. And But Jane sees right through it. I wrote this. In Jane fashion, she writes a nice letter back to Caroline. There's not a bone in her body that can be rude. <laughs> Elizabeth tries to run interference between Darcy and Mr. Collins, Sir William Lucas, and Mrs. Phillips. She tries it, but Darcy really handles himself pretty well. And then in the end, it says that she is really excited to host her, quote, close family at Pemberley and not these relations that she has to protect him from. I also love her letter to Miss Gardner too. When she says, I am happier even than Jane. She only smiles. I laugh. Mr. Darcy sends you all the love in the world that he can spare from me. Please come to Pemberley at Christmas. So the gardeners will be their friends and family as well. And then another great line. When he came back to Hertfordshire after they got Lydia married, Elizabeth says, what made you so shy of me when you first called and afterwards dined here? Why, especially when you called, did you look at me as if you did not care about me? Because you were grave and silent, he responded and gave me no encouragement. But I was embarrassed. 
So was I. That's Darcy. And then she said, you might have talked to me more when you came to dinner. And he said, a man who had felt less might. Yeah. I now did like Darcy's that. finally talking. He has a lot of good lights. Yeah. <laughs> this, this kind of reminds me of like, okay, so my husband and I knew each other, you know, since we were like three, he was three and I was one when we met. And so when we finally like got together, we spent like hours talking about stuff like this, about like interactions we'd had as the younger children. And so this just kind of reminded me of that. That's like awesome. Now yeah. they're being free with what they're saying. And, you know, we hadn't been free to talk about stuff like that. And then we spent many evenings discussing interactions we'd had with each other. Yeah, I think that's so cool. I love it. We're on the last chapter. Okay. All the falling action here. Yeah, because somewhere between the end of chapter 60 and the beginning of chapter 61, they get married. But although the first line of 61 does say, happy for all her maternal feelings was the day on which Mrs. Bennett got rid of her two most deserving daughters. And so that does make me wonder if just that line is kind of where some directors got the idea to make their wedding on the same day, because it sounds like, you know, that maybe they were married on the same day, Jane and Lizzie. But what's kind of funny is, she says, you know, you would think that once all of her desires were accomplished, that Mrs. Bennett would not be so silly and crazy and everything. But alas, it was not to be like she was still pretty silly and pretty crazy. In fact, to the point that Jane and Bingley started out living at Netherfield, they only made it a year before they were like, okay, we need to leave because Mrs. Bennett is driving us crazy. And so they they actually ended up buying a beautiful home near Derbyshire. It was about 30 miles from Lizzie and Mr. Darcy. And that was a really wonderful situation for them. Apparently, Mr. Bennett really loved going to Pemberley. And it says that he liked to go there, especially when he was least expected. So he was one of just showed up at the door. So that's fun. And it's a long way to come. So when he just shows up, he probably stays for a few weeks too. Yeah, seriously. Exactly. But fortunately, very large grounds and very large house. So it's fine. But, um, and apparently, so Kitty spends a lot of time between Jane and Lizzie's house. And it sounds like she's not unwelcome. And it actually is to her benefit in like in every way, both materially, but also for her character and her personality, she's able to have a lot more without Lydia around. She's influenced by her older sisters and their husbands much more. And it really is to her benefit that she spends a lot of time with her sisters. Um, Mary kind of gets the short end of the stick again. I'm sure she would have the option of going and spending time with Lizzie and Jane, but she ends up spending most of her time with her mother. And it does kind of like force her to get out into society a lot more than she would like to. But yeah, so she's now her mother's like pretty much only companion. So that's fun for her. So again, this chapter is sort of just like tying up all the loose ends, giving us like the last little bit of all these characters, which is like sad and happy and everything at the same time. So Lydia and Wickham really never change. Their situation doesn't improve, but they are always sort of holding on to this hope that Darcy is going to rescue them and pull them out of their situation. And in fact, Lydia sends this kind of audacious letter to Lizzie. And she says, when you have nothing else to do, I hope you'll think of us. I'm sure Wickham would like a place at court very much. And I do not think we shall have quite money enough to live upon without some help. Any place would do of about three or 400 a year. But however, do not speak to Mr. Darcy about it if you had rather not. And says Elizabeth would rather not. But 
she does help them. Like she sends money to them as she can. And Darcy actually really does help to improve Wickham's fortunes. Wickham and Lydia are often appealing to both Jane and Lizzie to sort of bail them out of their bad spending habits and situations. And they are always willing to help them. But it also says that, you know, Wickham is really not welcome at any of the houses, but Lydia will come and she will stay so long. (laughs) Even, Even Mr. Bingley, who's just so kind and gracious, even he will get to the point that he will hint that it's it's time for her to go. Miss Bingley, Caroline, she realizes that she should not burn any bridges. So she drops her resentments towards Lizzie and really towards Jane. And she's, you know, tries to be as gracious as she can so she can be welcome at these houses. Georgiana and Lizzie form like just the most wonderful sisterly bond. And Georgiana just really mm-hmm. looks up to Lizzie in every way. And she learns a lot about good relationships between men and women by observing the way that Lizzie and Mr. Darcy are with each other, especially on Lizzie's side. And so she began to comprehend that a woman may take liberties with her husband, which a brother will not always allow in a sister, just like in the way that she talked to him and things. And then Lady Catherine, of course, she was very angry and Mr. Darcy pretty much like cut her off for quite some time. And then Lizzie finally was like, okay, probably need to forgive her. And she did condescend to come and visit them at Pemberley, probably for no other reason than to just see how Elizabeth was conducting herself as the new Mrs. Darcy. And it just ends with saying that the gardeners, they were always on the most intimate terms with the Darcys. And Darcy, as well as Elizabeth, really loved them. And they always knew that it was really kind of to the gardeners that they owed, you know, ultimately the their happy ending. So, and there's the end of the book. You know, it reminded me of like the end of a movie where like the words will flip up. That's like, and this person ended up doing this and this, like it just tied it all up with a little bow and everything is great. Some people turned out better. Some people didn't. (laughs) I feel so, I mean, I just feel so good that I've read that whole book and we talked about it for about 12 hours (laughs) or so. (laughs) And you you could talk about it for so much longer. Like it's we, we some, skip stuff. I yes. know, I know. Like it's it's some good. Well, stuff. that was kind of one thing I sort of wanted to recap is just and not even like recap because I think we have talked about it, but just to kind of like leave listeners with these questions, like classics in general, but maybe Pride and Prejudice specifically, thinking about what does it have to offer a modern audience? And I feel like we've tried to do that where we relate to it. I mean, I think I read it at a young enough age that this book was really, really formative for me in thinking about how I formed relationships and what kind of like person I wanted to be. I almost feel like each of our five daughters in the story is a certain stereotype of a certain kind of person. Again, like reading at a young enough and impressionable enough age it was easy to see like who I wanted to emulate and who I wanted to be like. So I think that's kind of an interesting question that we've explored. I think another question we've talked about is in what ways the Darcy effect real and in what ways is it a myth? How we do or don't change for love and what expectations should be around that. I also like that we kind of explored this idea of like, what does it mean to be an accomplished woman? In the end, we see that sometimes people who are accomplished, that doesn't the people who are quote unquote accomplished, maybe more like uh, the Bingley sisters, that doesn't always necessarily translate into like goodness or kindness. Right. And so I just like that we've kind of explored some of those kind of questions. 
throughout the course of the book. Why we keep reading the classics is not just to be entertained. If it was just about the story or just about the love story, you can go watch all kinds of media about this. You can read easier novels that are easier to access. You know, there's just something really, really uplifting and edifying about the language of this book that is unmatched. Yes. And the way that she does it, um, one definition of a classic that I'd read and I'd shared it on her before was that a classic never stops saying what it was trying to say, you know? So it really, it after you, you're done with the book, there's still so much to think about and talk about. And which is such a tribute to the authors that they're able to construct this book that, that leaves such an impression that it, it can change you because it, it forces you to think about things and to really dive deep into into everyday issues and think more deeply about them. So here in town, well, in a nearby town, they have something every August called the Scandinavian Festival. Mm-hmm. And David and I went Friday night and we were just walking around and I saw all these groups of young teenagers, probably like probably 13 years old, maybe. And I was watching some of the girls and I was like, oh my gosh, these are like Kitty and Lydia. <laughs> When you're reading the classics, I mean, those types of personalities, like Nan said, there's five girls and five stereotypical personalities that still exist today. And we can still see in what we're experiencing things from the classics. I heard a quote the other day, I was listening to a podcast and a guy was talking about, okay, so I have to tell you about this podcast. It's Seth Myers and his brother do a podcast called Family Trips. It's hilarious. So they interview other celebrities and talk about their family trips. And it's very entertaining. But what was funny is the guy was talking about the great Gatsby. And I was like, oh my gosh, I totally know what he's talking about. I mean, when we read these classics, it brings so much more meaning into like other conversations that we might have and people can relate. Eric finished Lord of the Flies and we've been able to talk about it. It's been really good. It's awesome. And he did it on his own. I'm like really proud of him. I know. Isn't it, doesn't it just like connect you on a, like a whole nother level when you can share books? I just love it. Yeah, it really does. Yeah. And I feel like if we quit reading the classics too, we lose our ability to read well and closely and we lose a lot of cultural touchstones and classic literature. When it's really good, it will refer back to even older literature, like to like Greek mythology, to biblical stories and mythologies. And so when we stop reading them, we're losing our tether to the past, which I think is really valuable. I had also come up with like kind of a list of books. Like if you like Pride and Prejudice, try these books. They're not just like spinoff books necessarily, because there's tons of those. If you want to read fan fiction about Pride and Prejudice, you can do it all day long. These are more like books that are not spinoffs, but they're more, I don't know. I just think that if you enjoyed Pride and Prejudice, you might like these books. There's a Regency author that wrote a lot in the like mid-1900s. Her name's Georgette Heyer. And I think you have to be a little bit selective about Georgette Heyer because I feel like some of her novels are not, they shouldn't age as well as other ones, but some of them are just completely delightful. And she comes closer, I think, to hitting Austen's tone than any other author I've ever read. As far as like that kind of absurdity, that silliness, that kind of, I don't know. I just love her. It's called Sylvester. It was also, I think it was originally published under the title, The Wicked Uncle. It can be found sometimes out of print, but it's delightful. 
And that, I think, if you like Pride and Prejudice, Sylvester or The Wicked Uncle is by Georgette Heyer. North and South by Elizabeth Glasgow is also lovely. And the film is brilliant. They did that one as a mini as a miniseries film. So you kind of get the whole story a little better there. Her dialogue is not nearly as snappy as Austin's, but the story is really great. Jane Eyre, again, that's more in that like gothic sensibility than what Austin was writing about. Austin is almost writing in in like that kind of anti-gothic or anti-romance, anti-sentimental. She's, she's really pushing back against the popular women's writing of the time. I would say Jane Eyre more like doubles down on it almost, but is still really brilliant. Longbourn, which I've talked about several times, kind of that upstairs, downstairs look. That one is kind of fan fiction, but it takes the story in a different enough direction that she's not just building on characters. The main characters in Pride and Prejudice become secondary characters very much in Longbourn. There was another film version that came up that I think looks pretty good that I'd like to try. It's called Bride and Prejudice. It was done by Bollywood and it's five daughters. And and that's a very like marriage oriented society and arranged marriages. And so it has a very cultural take on Pride and Prejudice. If you are a murder mystery person and you like Regency murder mysteries, they've done a take on this one called Death Comes to Pemberley. It is kind of a fan fiction, but it takes place many, many years in the future when they're all at Pemberley. And that was both a book and a film. Austin Land, I think for anybody who is a real Austin fan, because Austin Land does a brilliant job of poking fun at Austin fans. And of all the books on my list, I really do think Jane Austen would have adored Austen Land because it's so absurd. I think she would have just delighted in that. The last one, and this is one, You've Got Mail, was a story first, but also the film, of course. You've Got Mail makes several references to Pride and Prejudice throughout. It's the main character, Kathleen Kelly, and You've Got Mail, her favorite book is Pride and Prejudice. She refers to it often, which Joe Fox kind of teases her for being so literary. There's Pride and Prejudice elements throughout that story. Again, first impressions are not always our best impressions of things. I have three and I'll go to this one first. And I read this year or two ago. It's called Aisha at Last by Uzma. I don't know how to say her last name. Starts with a J. Jalaladin. It was one of the ones that was recommended when I was kind of going through my list too. Yes. And I read it, you know, I read it before I read Pride and Prejudice. So like, I wouldn't know it, but I heard it's a loose retelling and it's about a Muslim family with a bunch of girls. And it was, it was interesting. It was very good. So I like that. And it's a newer book. It came out just a couple of years ago. The Murder of Mr. Wickham by Claudia Gray. So this one is a bunch wow. of characters from Pride and Prejudice are brought in and they, Wickham shows up for dinner and he's murdered. And then they have to figure out which character killed him. That one I thought sounded really Because everybody has a motive. Right. <laughs> Nobody likes Mr. Wickham. And I think the lady that told, talked about the murder of Mr. Wickham talk, also talked about death comes to Pemberley. So they were similar. Then the last one I thought was very interesting. It's called Miss Elizabeth Bennett by A.A. A. Milne, who wrote oh, really? Winnie the Pooh. And it's a stage adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. Well, he did write plays first. So that's really cool. It was like a very shortened version of Pride and Prejudice. So I want to pick that up because it looked really interesting. Okay. I just have two that I thought of. The first one is 
It is a modern one set in Regency England and it's called Edenbrook. Have you guys read Edenbrook? Um, Carlina just texted me and said, you have to read this. And I have it oh. waiting for me at the library. You did find What's it. At the library. Yeah. It was published by Desert Book or something. Yes. You can find it at Desert Book, like every Desert Book. And I read it years ago. It's by Julianne Donaldson. I loved it. It was one of those that you stayed, I stayed up all night finishing it because I loved it so much. It was really very clean romance, but very like intense. She's written a bunch and they have yeah. a whole line at Desert Book that's kind of those clean Regency romances, if mm-hmm. you like those. Nancy Campbell Allen is another author who's written a bunch of stuff from that time period that's really good too. Yeah. And a lot of times, like I have a hard time with it because I just feel like they're trying too hard to make it seem like it's uh-huh. Jane Austen or or whatever. But I felt like she really nailed this one. I thought she did a, a very excellent job. In fact, it's one that I got for Addie a few years ago for Christmas and she has read it many times over. She loves it. The other one that I thought of, and it's maybe a little bit out of pocket, but I thought of Middle March by George Eliot, also known as, well... Her name is Marianne Evans. She wrote as George Eliot. It's set in Middlemarch. It's a fictional English Midlands town. It has many different characters. It follows all their stories and they all sort of intertwine. And it is very much about marriage and how, how it works. Sometimes it doesn't work. Anyway, there's it's a much more tragic story, I think, than Pride and Prejudice, but it's very good. So she wrote it in 1871 and 1872, but it is set in like... 1829 to 1830. So a little bit closer to like the Pride and Prejudice era. But anyway, so. thing I want to add there is we're talking about different books, not necessarily a different book. It's that you'd have to be careful when you look at some of this fan fiction. Some of it's really trashy. They ruin Austin by making it about something that Austin doesn't intend for it to be about. As you dive into some of these other kind of offshoots or different ones, everything we've recommended here, I think is mostly you know, not like that. But if it's just straight up like fan fiction that tells like what happens in the immediate aftermath, we're going to tell the real story of the wedding and the honeymoon or things like this. It's just, it's not going to be what you think it's going to be. So yeah. 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 I have a hard time with those as well. Cause I'm like, you are not Jane Austen. So you don't know. (laughs) You missed the point. (laughs) Exactly. At the beginning, I talked about that might have been before we recorded, though, with my kids this week, I've been reading aloud um, the uh, Cinder books. So we finished Cinder this week. We also started Scarlet, which is the second one. I love all four of them by Marissa Meyer. They're the Lunar Chronicles. I think they're fantastic. I love fairy tale retellings. The next one that I read on my own this week is kind of a Regency murder mystery. And I read some of these and usually they're like, meh, that's no good. I'm not going to tell anybody to read that. This one was delightful. It's called A Brazen Curiosity. It's about a girl who's like the poor relation. She ends up at a house party. She stumbles across a brutal murder with the Duke that she hates and that the Duke isn't dead, but she finds the body basically at the same time she runs into this Duke who's very like high and mighty and made a terrible first impression. It's clever and delightful and witty and the author, like actually the tone is just good. It was, it was good. I, this is the kind of a book I hardly ever give a five-star rating to on Goodreads. And I did for this one. It's called a brazen curiosity by Lynn Messina. And there's actually 10 of them. I might make it through the first few. I don't know. We'll see. I'm not going to use my Audible credit for the next year every month to download the next one. You guys are like, I hate this. Now I have like 25 books to read. (sighs) There's an ever-growing pile for sure. 
I, this week, read Tell Me Everything by Minka Kelly. Do you guys know mm. who she is? That sounds really familiar. I didn't know who she was. That book, so but... she is, she played Lila on Friday Night Lights. And she had a horrible childhood. I mean, it could have been worse. <laughs> but her mother was like a drug addict and a stripper. And her father used to be a guitarist in Aerosmith. But he was just like her biological father that she didn't really have contact with until later in life. But she was raised by another guy that was kind of abusive. And I mean, he was kind of in and out of their lives because her mom was just all over the place. But I would have finished it, except my earbud Thursday when I was working stopped working. (laughs) I only had one left and it like wouldn't do anything. And I was like... Oh my gosh, I have to be with my own thoughts. It was bad. So I'm almost done with it. I have like, I'm like 75% in, but it was very interesting. I mean, she had a hard life. And what I liked about what she was talking about a lot is like everything that happened to her that was hard, she can look back and say it was for her own good. Mm. It's kind of what we were talking about earlier, right? You know, her dad, she went moved in with her dad when she was you know, 18. And after a month, he's like, okay, now you need to move out. And she's like, wait a second, what? And then she says, now looking back, if he hadn't pushed me out, I wouldn't have like stretched myself and, you know, did what I need to do. She actually went and got, went to school to be a nurse and people would just kept saying, you need to be a model. You need to be a model. And she's like, I'm not interested in that. And then I haven't even gotten to the part yet where she like, she's doing commercials, but she hasn't landed the part of Friday night lights yet. So mm. anyways, that's, I guess I like books about people who have hard lives. I don't know what that says about me. Well, because in truth, like everybody has hard. And so it's just, it just helps us to realize that we're all, we all have things in common. And she like and, triumphed and over learn it. From other people's mistakes, we maybe don't have to make the same ones. I mean, I like to hear about people who had hard lives and then they came out of it better. Right. And like dug themselves out. So. Right. Because they didn't hold on to that. Well, everything's happening to me and I'm completely helpless. It's like, no, there's something that I can do about this. One thing that was really funny is she, her and her mom moved to Albuquerque and when she was living with her dad, so she had like an accent and she was a rough kid. Like she got in fights at school and stuff. And she's this tiny girl, which just cracks me up. She heard the answering machine come on and a girl talking and she looked at her dad and she's like who is that and he's like that's you and she was like oh my gosh I have to change how I sound wow <laughs> so that's interesting and if you've watched some Friday Night Lights she has like a very sweet voice that I don't know she fixed it I guess so I finished read and finished it's called The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk I think there's a few books called this, but this one's, it's not old, but it's like a few years older than some. So the body keeps the score, brain, mind, and body in the healing of trauma. And it's very deep. There's like a ton of research presented in it. He's a psychiatrist that anyway, there it's, it's a lot. Like I had to just take it in sections because there's it was quite heavy, but he's just talking about how our body really does hold on to trauma. And that seems obvious, but, but you have to treat it. I mean, it just has to be treated in very special ways. And he just talked about all the, the ways that he had tried over the years to, to treat, especially veterans, but then those who had suffered from major childhood trauma, 
and and we're talking like major, major trauma and how it doesn't just go away. Your body does hold on to it until, and it becomes evident in other ways. So it has to be dealt with in the proper ways. And he talked about these many different methods that they would try that they would find were working, but then they would run up against all these bureaucrats and like red tape people who'd be like, oh, we're not going to fund that. We're not going to carry on with this research. We're not going to carry on with these treatments. And so that's, that's been really discouraging. Something though that I thought was interesting that because he did also bring it down to the level of like, you know, anybody with any kind of trauma, still their body does hold on to that. You know, it doesn't have to be major like, you know, you were raped repeatedly by your father and his friends. He talks about that. That's the only reason I bring that because that's horrible. But like, it doesn't have to be that deep of trauma to still be considered trauma, you know, like, and your body's still going to hold on to it and you still need to deal with it. And so something he talked about that I thought was really interesting is like the value of exercise. He actually talked about marathon running and these deep yoga experiences and and how just that deep breathing, specifically it's the marathon running because of, of all the very deep breathing that you're doing and how that helps your, your mind and your body. And he talked about theater and learning Shakespeare, in fact, in helping to deal with trauma. And he's like, honestly, all the things that are the first to be taken out of schools are the things that help kids cope with trauma the most. So your PE, your theater programs, your music, your art, those are all the things that, you know, obviously they're so important to our culture and to our minds, but they are also the things that help us heal from trauma. Anyway, it was very fascinating, very, (laughs) very heavy. It's not a fluffy not a fluffy read at all, but it was good. So next week, we are going to do the wheel on the school. So we're going to do the first yes. half, which is basically like chapters one through eight, I think. By okay. Mindart de Jong. It's kind of expensive on Amazon. So I actually just checked it out from the library. So it's pretty easy to get from the library. If- yeah, it's usually available at the library. You can probably, you can maybe find it at a thrift store. And that's too bad that it's expensive on Amazon. I was able to find it several years ago for maybe like $6.99 or something. But yeah, it just seems like there's more and more books that getting more expensive is they're harder to find. But this one is a treasure for sure. And I'm really excited to talk about it. It's funny because I was at this sort of homeschooling exchange of ideas thing. And I was telling everybody about how I... For several years, I've taught my kids from English from the roots up, which is teaching them all the Latin and Greek roots that we find most commonly in English words. And I like really had to defend my position on why I teach that, first of all, which is kind of weird. But a lot of them were sold on it. And so they went to look for it. Vocabulary. Um, yes. And to like understand new words that you're confronted with that you haven't seen before. Absolutely. Exactly. And there's science. It's good for lots of things. Yeah. Good for so many things. And so I did, I had to like go through and list all those things anyway. So some of them went and looked it up. Now, when I bought the books and the flashcards, they were very reasonable. They were like $20 or something. They went and looked them up and they were over a hundred dollars because they're now out of print. (laughs) I was like, Oh, sorry guys. I guess I was lucky when I bought them years ago. (laughs) It also kind of makes me sad that that's out of print because it is so valuable and it's a really wonderful way to teach and learn. 
We're so happy you joined us for this episode. We hope you will join us next week as we discuss the first half of The Wheel on the School by MindArt DeYoung. If you have suggestions for books we should read and discuss, please email us at thebestbookspodcast at gmail.com. We would love it if you would leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts and share our podcast with your friends. We want to inspire and encourage as many people as we can to read out of the best books. As Thoreau says, read the best books first or you may not have a chance to read them at all. See you next week.